0: Awesome, well, we are on week number three of a series we're calling Field Guide for a Follower. And so what we're doing is we're asking the question, how do you know, uh, or how can you spot a true follower of Jesus out in the world? Like, what are the markers of a true follower of Jesus? How would you actually know one when you saw one out in the world? And so what we're doing is we're looking at the the two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonican church, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And we're just talking about what does that look like? Paul wrote about these markers, these defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus that you can spot them out in our culture. Um, The oldest or one of the oldest companies in America is the Coca-Cola Company. I bet you every single one of you in this room have at some point had a Coke. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have already had a Coke beverage or some Coke product this morning, even on your way into church. What a lot of people don't know is that Coke actually was an accidental invention. Uh, It was invented by a guy named John Pemberton. John Pemberton was a pharmacist who lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And John Pemberton was trying to create a drink that when you drank it, it would actually cure headaches. That was his goal, was to make some medicine, like a medical beverage that when you drank it, it would cure your headache. In fact, one of the original ingredients in Coca-Cola was cocaine. But I guess at one time we thought that was good for you. <laughs> And I I have no doubt that it did cure headaches too, probably, if you drank that drink. But he 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 was trying to create medicine, but instead what he created accidentally was this beverage that tasted really good and people really liked it. And so what happened was it never really took off as medicine, but the Coca-Cola company was formed and Coca-Cola took... Coke out of the hands of the original creator, John Pemberton, and they watered it down and sugared it up, and then turned around and marketed it to millions and millions of people as a delicious sugary drink. And from there, more and more versions of Coke started to come out. Then there was Diet Coke. And then there was Diet Cherry Coke, and then Vanilla Coke, Vanilla Cherry Coke, there was Coke Zero. And now, I don't know if you've seen um, this, if you've gone to like Qdoba or a restaurant recently, and you see this is called Coke Freestyle, these machines, where there are over a hundred different choices, a hundred different versions of Coke products that you can have now, you know, right at your at the touch of a button. Now here's the thing about that. Uh, maybe it's true that Coke does cure your headache. I don't know. For some of you, maybe if you have a headache, if you drink a Coke, maybe it does help you. But you'd have to agree, Coke has been kind of taken out of the hands of the original creator, and it's, it's being used today for a very different purpose than the original creator had in mind. And, and the reason I tell you that is because I would say what, we, what our culture has done with Coca-Cola, I, I would say our culture has done the exact same thing with sex, Sex, by what we've done with it is we've taken it out of the hands of the original creator, God, and we've watered it down and sugared it up, and we've marketed it to millions and millions of people as a product. And most of the sex that you hear about and most of the sex that you can see on the internet has about the same nutritional value for your soul as a Coke does for your body. One of the markers that Paul talks about next in 1 Thessalonians, one of the ways that you can spot a true follower of Jesus in the culture is that a true follower of Jesus allows the original creator God to redefine our sexual relationships. And so that's where we're going to go today. Um, By the way, we sent a push uh, notification out on our app this morning about this. Um, but now that you know what the content of this message is going to be, I just want to mention one more time to you again, we have this incredible children's ministry called the block <laughs> that exists right over there. And, um, if you have young kids with you and you don't want to have to answer some questions that maybe you're not ready to answer yet, this would be a good time. There will be no judgment if you stand up and walk over in that direction <laughs> or run as fast as you can in that direction. Um, I also, but some of you may think to yourself, no, actually I want my kids in here for this, this is exactly what uh, I want my kids in here to be a part of and to hear. And so we're gonna look at what does it mean to allow Christ to redefine our sexual relationships? That's a major component of how you can spot a follower of Christ. Our culture passionately proclaims, it's my body, my choice. Nobody has the right to tell me what is right or wrong for me sexually. And what's interesting about that is that's actually true. Theologically, that's true. God did did give us free will. Each one of us does have the ability to choose for ourselves. Each one of us has to decide what is right and what is wrong for me when it comes to sexual relationships. But the question is, what do you base your decision on? How do you decide? For followers of Christ, we we allow God to redefine those sexual relationships for us. And what we say is, what, what has the right, what has the authority in our lives to define what's right or wrong sexually for us as followers of Jesus is the scriptures. And in the scriptures, starting at the beginning of the book of Genesis, and we're gonna look at this a little, in a few minutes, but from Genesis and then reaffirmed by Jesus, reaffirmed again by Paul, all the way to the end of the Bible, the only form of sexuality that the Bible actually affirms is a man and a woman within the context of marriage. That's it. Now, um, before we we go any further, before we even get into the text this morning, I I wanna say something. And I hope this is a a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, I have absolutely no desire this morning with this message to be judgmental or condemning of anybody. Okay, I think if you've been coming to Frontline for a while, I think you know this, but we are a church that says, man, you are welcome. Whatever situation you're in, whatever is going on in your life, you are welcome. You are a part of us. We exist on purpose for you. That's why we exist as a church. Uh, What's even more than that is I have so much sexual brokenness in my own life and in my own past that I have no desire to be judgmental or condemning of anyone, because that would be like the most hypocritical thing, honestly, that I could do. But because I have sexual brokenness in my past, here's what I also know, and that I think is just true of all of us. As human beings, we don't tend to drift towards sexual purity, correct? We don't tend to just sort of drift toward God's ideal sexual purity as human beings because we have sexual brokenness. And so every once in a while, we have to allow God's word to just challenge us a little bit. And so that's what I wanna invite you to do this morning. I want you to, if, if I could, whatever, situation sexually you find yourself in this morning, I would love if you could kind of withhold your defenses. And as we enter into the word here this morning, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you just to allow God's word to challenge you. And it's going to challenge each of us in different ways because we're sexually broken in different ways. But allow God's word to challenge you this morning as we enter in. That's all I would ask. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1 says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more for you remember what, you, what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin." Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching. He's saying, look, this isn't just me and my opinion. He says, but is actually rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other for God himself has taught you to love one another. So if everybody could, well, let's just take a big deep breath together. <sighs> okay. Okay. I want to, if I could, just take you a little bit into the context of who Paul is talking to because there are some specific reasons he says what he says here. Paul was speaking to uh, believers who were in the city of Thessalonica, which was a very Greek city in the ancient world. And what's interesting is is we know that in, in all three, Greek, Roman, and Jewish law, adultery was forbidden. Having sexual relations outside of of your spouse, outside of marriage, cheating on someone, was actually forbidden by law. What we also know is that men in their 20s and 30s in Greek culture would regularly visit prostitutes and would regularly have sexual affairs without any recourse at all. No legal action taken. Now, the reason for this is because sex in the ancient world, the first century Mediterranean world, catered toward men and so marriage basically was like a social contract. So uh, families were very you know, concerned with uh, having a sense of honor for your family and avoiding a sense of shame. And so oftentimes a marriage would be an arrangement based on a social contract that would take the family forward. And so young men would get married based on this social contract and wives were viewed almost like property. And uh, your wife was good for raising a family. That's what she was good for. But what men would do is they would go uh, visit prostitutes, and they would oftentimes even uh, pursue young boys for, for um, pleasurable sex. And in fact, this is widely recorded. I'm, I'm not making this up. Uh, some of the greatest Greek philosophers talked about just the different levels of, the, uh, of sex. And um, so uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they talk, many of them talked about the idea that the highest form of sex was uh, for a man with an eight-year-old boy. And that was regularly talked about. That That was pursued all forms of sex were embraced in the Greek and uh, uh, ancient culture in the Mediterranean, including pedophilia and including bestiality. It was all embraced. It was all okay. And so that's who Paul is speaking to. Paul is speaking to a culture where that was the idea. It was it was all embraced and marital sex was kind of at the bottom rung of the ladder. The, the better forms of sex were, were up here and they were all, all different kinds and uh, ways. And so there's a couple of lies that... The culture was embracing, and I think that culture was embracing, but I I would argue today we have embraced these same couple of lies. You can jot these down if you want to, but but these lies, when we believe them about sexuality have profound impact on our lives. First of all, what they were embracing is this idea that sex is purely a physical act that is disconnected from the rest of our being, soul, emotions, spirit. The Greeks had this idea that the the, the body was separate from the internal man, the the soul or the spirit or the, the, the intellect. And so you could kind of separate it and compartmentalize it out. And we've embraced that in our, in our society as well. And the implication of this, when you believe this, is, is the mentality becomes, well, what I'm going to do is then is I'm going to try out sex with as many people as I can. I'm going to go out and I'm going to have sex and I'm going to, as many op- opportunities as I get, and hope that eventually I will find the right one. I've given enough sexual encounters, hopefully I'll find the one I'm compatible with, the right one, and then I'll make a commitment to that right one when I find them. But then if I find myself in a situation where, man, that's not working out or that person isn't meeting my needs anymore or whatever, then I'm going to leave and I will begin looking for other people and having sex because apparently that person was not the right one. So I'm going to keep going and looking. It's this endless quest to find the right one. And, and the implications of, of that when we do it is it leaves us broken. It leaves our relationships fractured. It leaves our souls in a dark place. And so what Paul is insisting in this passage we just read is he's saying, no, sex is actually spiritual. It's not disconnected. Your body, your physical, and your sexuality is not disconnected from your soul. Sex is spiritual. When he says, be holy, in other words, avoid all sexual impurity, be holy. The word holy actually means to be set apart for God's purposes. That's what the word holy means. It says, be holy, be set apart for God's purposes, Yes, even that part of your life, even your sexuality, allow it to be set apart and, and be surrendered to Jesus for his purposes. That's what he's insisting, is sex, because sex is spiritual. Another lie the culture had, had embraced and that our culture, I would argue, has also embraced is this idea that sex can be reduced to a product that we can consume. It can, it can be kind of reduced down to a financial interaction. The implication of when we believe this is pornography uh, becomes uh, you know, readily available. Sex trafficking is an end result of this. By the way, did you know Grand Rapids is one of the leading cities in the nation when it comes to being a hub for sex trafficking? That's, that's true. You can go look that up. All forms of sex addiction start, to, all these things start to become normal when we kind of reduce sex down to, no, this is actually like a product. It's just, it's a product we can consume where we can buy. And what Paul is insisting in this passage is he's saying, no, sex is not only spiritual, but sex is also relational. It it has this impact on our relationships. So sex is never just about me, my body, what I want to do. Sex always impacts other people. If you're married, it impacts your spouse. it It impacts your kids and the legacy you leave with your kids Your sexuality, if you're single, will impact other people you have sexual encounters with because sex is spiritual and sex is relational. That's how it impacts us. So that was the culture Paul was speaking into, and that's what he was saying. If if we could, I'd like to pivot just for a second. I want to talk about the cultural moment that we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus today in the West. Because there's a shift that's happened. And I honestly believe, I don't think most Christians today in the West even realize this shift has happened. But, but here, here's what's happening. For, for decades, and I think this is really inf- unfortunate, for decades, I feel like the church kind of used shame toward the culture when it talked about the Christian sexual ethic. So there was shame applied to others. I mean, people outside the church or, or anybody who wasn't living up to the Christian sexual ethic, shame was kind of placed on them and, and, and for, I wish that was not the case, but that's kind of what happened. What, what's happening is uh, the shift is now occurring where now our progressive culture is actually turning around and doing the same thing. And it's using shame against the church when it comes to the sexual ethic. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, tolerance has become our highest moral value as a society. And so the only thing we won't tolerate is intolerance, which, which doesn't make logical sense, but that's what we believe. Tolerance is the highest value. Therefore, the worst possible moral abomination you could be is someone who's intolerant. And so that's the only thing we won't tolerate is is intolerance. And so here's the shift. How that's played itself out is when I was a teenager, like when dinosaurs still roam the earth, (laughs) uh, when I was a teenager, if somebody talked about the Christian sexual ethic, like for instance, if, if a teenager said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm saving myself until marriage, what people would say is, oh, that's puritanical, or that's, that's lame, that's cheesy. That's what people would say. But basically, like, the Christian sexual ethic was regarded as the more moral choice. Like, people would generally agree, yeah, that's the more moral position, but yeah, being moral is like cheesy, it's lame, it's, you know, that's, that's what we'd be called, but today, what's happening in our culture now is, if a teenager says, "Oh, I'm, I'm saving myself from marriage," or you know, begin to talk about the Christian sexual ethic, what people say now is well, that's bigotry. That's oppressive. You're oppressing others with that view. My, my friends, that is a game changer of a shift that's happened. And I don't think we recognize it as followers of Christ. I don't think a lot of us really even recognize that that shift has happened and that that's the way our culture is viewing it. And so what's happening now, what's happening in the cultural moment we find ourselves in right now is everybody is kind of sitting in their little corner inside the church and outside the church, whether you have a traditional view of sex or or a more progressive view of sex, everybody's kind of sitting in their little corner saying we have the correct sexual ethic and what everybody is doing is throwing shame on everyone else. Everybody's throwing shame on it. Well, shame on you. You shouldn't think it. We, we're over here. We have it correct. And everybody in every corner is basically using shame on everybody else, which frankly isn't that helpful. It doesn't really help anybody. All it does is creates an overwhelming sense of shame for everyone when it comes to our sexuality, which shouldn't be a surprise because the inevitable result, when we look at the, the story of scripture, what we see again and again and again is this idea that our shame turns us away from God, particularly in the area of our sexuality. It's actually our sexual shame actually has the power. It just turns us away from God and from others. And so people who have had an abortion think that God hates them. People who have gone through a divorce just Assume that they're not welcome because they got a divorce and they got remarried. Young uh, students, teenagers who are you know wrestling with uh, gender identity issues, they just automatically think, "Man, I, I, I'm rejected." Before they even open their mouths to say anything, they just know I'm, I'm going to be rejected, and so many of them are just quietly exiting out the back door of the church, never saying anything because they just assume that their shame is going to turn them away from God. That they're ashamed and they're broken and that's what's happening in our world. And the reason that's happening is because that's the story of humanity. This is why I love the way Paul ends this passage. Uh, after saying all this, after he, he says this is, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, it's to allow Jesus to redefine our sexual relationships, he says in verse nine, after saying be holy, don't be impure, he says we don't need to remind you the importance of loving one another He concludes this whole passage with this idea of loving one another. We don't need to remind you the importance of loving one another because God Himself taught us that. What's He talking about? How did God Himself teach us how to love one another? What what Paul is doing here is He's talking about Jesus. He's saying, Paul, Paul is saying, God already gave us an example of how to find wholeness and how to love one another in the person of Jesus. He already demonstrated for that, that for us. He gave us that example in Christ. So what I wanna do with the rest of this message is I wanna just pivot and I wanna talk about how Jesus brings sexual wholeness into our lives. I wanna just walk you through how Jesus actually can bring sexual wholeness into your life. I know some of you are sitting there right now going, man, you have no idea what I've done. You, you have no clue what's in my past. You think Jesus is going to bring sexual wholeness into my life? Yes. I think he can, and I think he does. And so I want to walk you through that, if I could, in the next few minutes. So we're going to start at the very beginning Uh, of of the story of scripture in the book of Genesis. By the way, I I, I keep forgetting to mention this. We have Bibles now on racks at at every um, exit here that were donated for us. And so if you don't, those are for you if you wanna use them during the service, but you're also welcome to take one if you don't have like a hard copy of the Bible and you'd like that. We want everybody to have access to the scriptures. But in Genesis, uh, the the story of the Bible opens in the Garden of Eden, uh, God has created the world. He's like John Pemberton, he has this original design for everything. And so this Genesis 2.25 describes the sexual relationship between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. This is the ideal, this was God's original design. It says, now the man and his wife were both what? Okay, you guys are allowed to say that word in church, okay? You ha- I give you my permission. Let's try one more time. The man and his wife were both, naked. and they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. This is a description of sexual intimacy without any shame. That was God's design. That there would not be any sort of shame attached to sexual intimacy. That it would be this beautiful gift uh, between the man and the woman, and so. Uh, What happens is, uh, as as you get to chapter three in the book of Genesis, sin enters the world. I want to look at the verse that comes right after Adam and Eve take a bite of the fruit. They disobey God. Sin and brokenness enters our world. This is the very next verse after that happens. The first thing in all of creation that's impacted by the fall is sexuality. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt what? At their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So the very first thing in all of creation that's impacted as soon as sin and brokenness enters our world is suddenly now there's shame impacts sexual intimacy. And I would argue to you, that is the number one first place that the enemy wants to go after you in your life. He wants to bring shame into your sexuality. That's that's one of the first moves the enemy wants to do. It wasn't just the first move in creation with Adam and Eve. It's also the first thing the enemy attacks and goes after us because he knows sexual shame will turn us away from God. And that's exactly what happens. They they realize, they they begin to have shame over their nakedness. There's no longer a sense of of openness about sexual intimacy. Now there's shame. And so Adam and Eve have this idea, we've got to turn, it turns them away from God. They hide in the garden and now they make coverings, but it was like fig leaves or something, whatever. We don't know exactly. They make some sort of coverings by their own design to cover their bodies, to cover their nakedness. Now what I I want you to see, look at what God does in response to this. This is so powerful when you see this. Genesis 3, 21 says, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. So the way God responds is he says, look, the coverings you guys have made for yourselves, are not good enough. And so he takes animal skins and he actually takes those animal skins and gives them to Adam and Eve. and says, you're gonna have to take on my coverings for your shame and your sin. What scholars believe is that this is the first instance in scripture where an animal is sacrificed. An animal actually has to die in order to cover the sin and the shame of a human being. So what's implied here in this passage when God made clothing from animal skins is is he killed an animal and took the skins. By the way, isn't it weird? We're the only creatures in all of creation that actually take another animal skins and put it over ourselves to cover up our... If that just isn't weird, if that doesn't tell you there's something going on, I don't know what will. This is the first instance in all of scripture where an animal is sacrificed and its skin is used to cover the sin and the shame of another human being. This is where the sacrificial system came from. So as the story goes on in the scripture, God calls to himself a people, the Israelites, and they build a temple. And in the te- first it's a tabernacle, then it's a temple. And in the temple is an altar. And what they do with the altar is they bring an animal, usually a lamb, and they slit the lamb's throat and the blood pours out and the animal dies. And the blood was said to cover over our sin and our shame. And that whole sacrificial system that went on uh, for centuries came out of that verse, this idea that something had to die. There had to be something that sacrificed to, in order to cover over the, sh- the sin and the shame of our own brokenness. And our sexual shame is where the enemy goes after us the most. That's why it's so powerful when you get to the gospels and you almost miss it. You've probably read this verse if you've read the Gospels and not even realized what it was saying. In John chapter one, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist looks up in verse 29 and he sees Jesus, the statement he makes, we just kind of miss it, the statement he makes when he sees Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. When he sees Jesus, He says, behold, the lamb of God. He recognized Jesus is God's perfect lamb, spotless without any blemish. Behold, the perfect spotless lamb of God. And he doesn't just cover up our sin. He doesn't say, behold, the lamb of God. He's going to cover it up for us for a little bit longer. He says, who actually has the power to take away our sin. Jesus has the power to actually deal with our sexual shame and brokenness once and for all. That on the cross, when Jesus shed his blood and died for us, he was the perfect, blemish-free, sacrificial offering on the cross that took the price for our sin, took the shame uh, on himself so that we could experience freedom. Jesus was shamed and rejected so that we could be accepted and brought back into community with God. So so now, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's no more shame. there's, There's no more condemnation. You have been, your sin and your shame have been dealt with at the cross and you have been accepted by Jesus' sacrifice of you. He was shamed, he was rejected, so you could be accepted and brought back into community in the kingdom of God. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the hope that we have. So what that means for us then is what we do is we begin to become followers of Christ as we clothe ourselves with the grace of Christ. We put the grace of Christ actually over every part of our lives. Just like God made coverings for Adam and Eve, we put Christ on in every relationship in our lives. This is why, by the way, we we talk so much about Um, you know, this idea that marriages have to be founded, have to be centered on the person of Jesus. This is why. Because Jesus is the only one who can deal with our shame, deal with our sin and our brokenness. And he's the only one who can bring sexual wholeness into our lives. So marriages that are not centered on the person of Christ aren't going to make it. Even if you're not about to get a divorce any second now, it'll never be what it could be. But a marriage is centered on on the person of Christ. It's no longer about me trying to get my needs met and and trying to manipulate and control my spouse so they do what I want to do. It's about both of us submitting to the Lordship of of Christ. It's about both of us yielding ourselves to Jesus and that marriage becomes beautiful and it becomes life-giving, not just to my spouse and I, but to others, everyone who comes in contact with it. This is why we talk about this idea that families need to be centered on the person of Jesus. This whole thing we did this morning with child dedication, these families coming up, making commitment to raise their kids in a, in a Christian home and to know Jesus. It's why Jesus has to be the foundation of our families. It's because when he does that, he deals with our shame and our sin and our brokenness. And we become rooted in him and build up and grow in him And families that are centered on Jesus become beautiful. They become life-giving to everybody else that comes in contact with them. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to intersect your story and deal with your shame, your sexual brokenness. And he wants to bring wholeness even into that area of your life. So in Jesus, we get this vision for what sexual wholeness looks like. So if you're I've said everything in this message to say this to you. Here's what we're all called to do. As followers, uh, go ahead to that next statement. We, we come to this place where we realize we all are sexually broken. I am, you are, all of us. We're, we're broken in different ways. Every human being, every one of us is sexually broken and we all need to surrender our sexuality to Jesus. And that will look different. Different for different uh, ones of us, depending on where we're at today. We all have to come to this place where where we acknowledge I'm sexually broken, that's the truth about me. And every single one of us comes to this place where we need to surrender our sexuality to the person of Jesus, so we can be made sexually whole. Single, married, straight, gay. We all have to come to this point of recognizing our sexual brokenness and surrendering that to the Lordship of Jesus. I'll close this in this way. Uh, it used to be really hard for me to admit, even just to one person, let alone stand in front of an entire room of people, it used to be really hard for me to admit that there is a significant period of my life where I had an out-of-control pornography addiction. began when I was 10 years old and just continued on. And it's still an area of my life I have to be in accountability for. It, it used to absolutely terrify me. If I, if, I, if I knew I was gonna have to admit that, I would literally be over there in the corner throwing up. It's not hard for me to admit that anymore. There, there was a time in my life where it used to be really hard for me to admit that uh, during a season of our marriage, Carrie and I, I came about as close as you can come to having an affair. And blowing up not only my marriage and my family, but also this ministry at this church. And that's not hard for me to admit anymore. I had absolutely no anxiety knowing that I was gonna stand right here and say that to you today. And the reason for that is not because of something special about me or some special talent or ability I have. The only reason for that is because I know something that some of you don't know yet. And I want want you to know it's so bad. And what I know, what what I have just embraced to the core of my being, I, I love the way that the hymn writer says it, that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I want you to know that. I want you to know that to the core of your being, to where it changes and sets you free in every possible way. But you don't get there by pretending like sin isn't sin. And you don't get there by shame and guilt and condemnation being heaped on. Neither one of those ways is the path. Neither one of those things does it. There is only one path to sexual wholeness and it leads through the cross. Jesus was shamed and rejected for you so that you could be accepted and welcomed back into, into community with God and with others. And so the the you know where do we go with that? If you're a person who's saying, man, I'm at this point, I'm ready to acknowledge that. I'm I am sexually broken. You're ready to join all of us and saying, yeah, that's a a thing that's impacted me. And you're ready to say, man, I'm ready to surrender my sexuality, even that part of my life to Jesus, to be made whole. Uh, The real power of small groups and why we talk about small groups and tell you to get in a small group is because we pursue wholeness in Jesus together. It's not something we were meant to do alone, hanging our heads in shame off in a corner. So we have men's groups. uh, We have women's groups. We even have... Um, groups for couples that are just pursuit together, just pursuing wholeness in Jesus, recognizing every single one of us is sexually broken and every single one of us has to pursue wholeness in Jesus. And I am so excited to to say this. We've never been able to say this as a church, but for the first time ever uh, this fall, we actually have a post-abortive small group uh, that is launching. There's a, a woman in our church who has been through, uh, has an incredible testimony of just going through an abortion and how God has met her and brought wholeness through the shame and the brokenness that came on the other side of that. And I am so excited that, that we can say we've got a group like that. And so um, no shame, no guilt. If that's something you need in your life, I know there are people in our church who need the healing that comes through that. I want, we want to see people set free. We don't pretend like sin isn't sin and we don't heap on shame and guilt. We pursue the one path to sexual wholeness that leads through the cross. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we just come before you right now, even right now, I just recognize God, uh, the incredible thing that you've done for us, that you were shamed and you were rejected so that we could be brought in, so that we could be accepted. Um, And so there is therefore now no condemnation for any of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we claim that to the bottom of our beings, God, that the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so God, we release and surrender our sin and our shame on you. We allow it to be put on you for all of eternity. And so God, would you move into that? Would you move into places of our lives of our, where we are sexually broken and would you give us freedom in you? Would you give us wholeness in you? God, I just pray for just spiritual legacies in this room that are gonna be impacted and changed for all of eternity. Family brokenness that has been passed down from generation to generation that's gonna be intersected. Jesus, would you intersect each one of our stories, our family story, and would you bring wholeness and healing? And I pray that that would reverberate out into our communities. God, I pray for those in our community, even beyond the four walls of this church, those who are enslaved to sexual sin, who are enslaved. Uh, God, I pray for those who are caught in the sex trafficking injury in, in the street, in this city. Jesus, we just pray for freedom. We just pray that you would set them free, that you would show us how to be agents of the kingdom. We just ask this in the risen and resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said,